what can we learn from whales, the ways they communicate their acts of altruism, and how their life cycle affects whole ecosystems, absorbing carbon and helping cool the planet. Nan Hauser is the president and director of the Center for Cetacean Research and Conservation and the director and principal investigator of Cook Islands Whale Research. Currently, she is in the field studying the migration of the southern humpback whale population that is currently passing through the Cook Islands, where she resides on the main island of Rarotonga. Her research includes population identity and abundance, acoustics, genetics, stable isotopes, behavior, and the navigation of cetaceans. Nan Hauser, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mia. It's such a pleasure to be here this morning from all the way around the planet. Yes, the, the Cook Islands. It's just so inspiring. You have this decades-long career studying whales, also dolphins and the ocean, and have so many experiences I can imagine about the beauty and wonder of their communication, kinship, and navigation. But tell us about that one experience which touched not only whale researchers, but people around the world. It's still such an amazing story that when I think about it or talk about it, I still get goosebumps. And it has been quite a link between people and cetaceans. And I like that. That's really important to me. I was making a film in Amsterdam and we just needed more footage of me underwater. When I slid over the side of the boat and a whale started swimming up to me and didn't stop. And so I put my hand out to stop the whale and it just put me right on its head and flipped me over under its chin and kept trying to tuck me under his pectoral fin and I've been with these animals for 33 years, and so it was intriguing yet terrifying at the same time because they are 50,000 pounds. And the, the big question was, as a scientist, why is this animal doing this? Only to find out about seven minutes into the encounter when I finally could look away from the whale for a second and see a huge tiger shark coming towards me with its pectoral fins down and arching its body. And at first I thought, oh, it's so big, it has to be another whale. But no, it wasn't. It was a tiger shark and it was moving fast. So then I suddenly realized, oh, yes, you know, humpbacks have this altruistic behavior that I had read about. And I had seen a little bit of it happening with other marine mammals, but hadn't really known that it was going to happen with humans. And lo and behold, he just pushed me back to the boat. So it was a 10 and a half minute encounter. And he got me back safely, arched his body around me till I got up on the back of the boat. And it was shocking. I was so surprised. I think actually I was in a bit of a state of shock because I started laughing when I got on the boat. And then about 10 seconds later, I put my hands over my eyes and started sobbing. So it was one of those mixed emotions. Oh my God, I'm still alive. And I thought he was going to kill me by mistake. Or maybe he wanted to kill me on purpose. And then all of a sudden, oh, he just pushed me away from Tiger Shark for 10 and a half minutes. It's beyond comprehension. Yeah, I can imagine. It's like a spiritual experience, the adrenaline of that. And 10 and a half minutes, but underwater, time slows down. That's a really good point. And when you're in an adventure of some kind, which always includes some threat of danger, time is so warped and lasts so long that it seemed like a day. So for this whale, who is a, it's a, a relationship now, to get to that level of trust and communication, they're not going to do that for anyone. So I'm just wondering, how did you hone those instincts that you could be at one with whales, have that deep communication? 
That's a really interesting question. And I think because the 33 years that I've spent with whales has been a process of growing, not just intimately with the whales, it's more the whales, they pick up on what you're thinking. And I learned that very quickly. I remember years ago, my PhD advisor had asked me, how do you get such incredible footage? How do you get the whales to stay with you? Because for me, every time you have an adventure or they give you a little piece of information, it's a gift because it's a mystery. And I said, do you want me to answer as a scientist or do you want me to tell you the truth? And he said, I would like you to tell me the truth. So I said, okay, unconditional love. I mean, I could have made up all these excuses about, oh, you do this and you just wait for them to come to you. And, and that's part of it. And that you slide in very quietly, you don't splash, but it's all this whole sort of intuitive thing that just makes so much sense for anybody who works with these animals or any animals that if you trust them and you just emit this unconditional love, they're going to pick up on it and they are going to respond. Indeed. I mean, it's a different kind of communication. I think that our communication is wonderful as it is. It's also limited and a little bit of literal, right? You can just tell me a little bit about that sense of being seen and heard. But you encountered this whale again in your life. And I think that's that sense of being seen and heard beyond species. Yes. So in 27 years, I've just been here and I was in the Bahamas in the Eastern Tropical Pacific before that. So we've only had three whales come back that we know of. And this was one of them. So for this whale to come back a year and 15 days later and find our boat, come directly next to our boat, ignore everyone else on the boat, but look up at me. And I just screamed, he's back. I can't believe it. He's back. So our sight fidelity here is very, very low. And so when he did come back, I slid in the water and it was a totally different experience. We swam up to each other. There was no panic in his eyes and there was no fear on my part. And I rubbed his face and we were eye to eye in a timeless moment. And then I tried to hold on to the tubercles on his face, which was a little uncomfortable. So he put his pecrofin straight out across the water and I laid on it and I just hugged him and cried. We had a beautiful, beautiful encounter together for probably about 35 minutes, just being together. And it was a reunion. And you can't describe it other than love. And of course, you are in the capacity of being a scientist who has been working to protect whales. So they sense your vocation and, and commitment to um, their survival. And I'm just so curious as well, because I understand from your studies is their navigation is very precise, but that these re-encounters are rare. Just tell me about this, because it's the most amazing internal compass. It's beyond technological advances. And we don't really understand exactly how it's happening, because we can't specifically find the magnetite. We thought it was in the dura mater of the brain, but I think that's been questioned since the the materials that we're using now, for instance, the scalpels, we're using glass instead of metal. So we're coming up with some different results than what we used to come up with, which is really interesting. But it's more than that, too. So when they leave here, they follow this linear constant course segment. And it is so linear that they don't even deviate by one degree. And how they do that in this vast blueness is beyond anything that man could ever do. That's that's for sure. So if I put my boat in front of them, they will go under it instead of around it. So they're following this linear line. And then according to the declination of the moon, they're making these angles 
23.439 degrees and multiples of that. So obviously the declination of the moon has to do with gravity, but where are they picking this up? Is it cellular? It's got to be somewhere in their cells. It's got to be somewhere in their being. And this is what we're having trouble finding out exactly. So 23.439 degrees, of course, is the Earth's axis. It's the tilt of the planet. So they're using celestial navigation, but not in a sense that we would understand it by looking up and using telescopes and using our eyes. They're feeling it. And so they will take that turn and use it in multiples and then follow another linear constant course segment. But we're not just seeing it in humpbacks. We're seeing it in killer whales. We're seeing it in turtles, sooty shearwaters, penguins, elephants. We're seeing it in animals that are in the sky, that are on land and that are underwater. And that's what blows my mind. How is this happening? And so that's what I often think about when I'm falling asleep. It's just such a great mystery. And how we can also avoid making the kind of noise pollution that might interfere with this. As I know you've also worked with dolphins and being able to socialize with dolphins might be more accessible for some people. But what made you choose the whale, maybe comparing them with dolphins? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I started out with dolphins. I spent a lot of my childhood in Bermuda. So I was around dolphins quite a bit. And I used to go down and sit at this dolphin grotto and I would be just amazed at their intelligence and their happiness. They just are such happy beings. But I would also watch the humpbacks from off the shore and it would squeal every time I'd see a blow. But then the big question was, what are they doing underwater? So I really wanted to study both, but I started with dolphins and they are a species of their own. <laughs> Every species of cetacean has their own vibration and their own personality and their own habits and their own beauty and culture. And so I really loved that. But while I was out there studying dolphins, I would see other species of whales. And I kind of went into these really rare whales that have been around while the dinosaurs were here. You know, they're 25 million years old and probably older than that, actually. And they were fascinating to me. And then I went into sperm whales and then I went into all different kinds of other species. But then I was sent out to the South Pacific to specifically look at a population of humpbacks out here. And that was many years ago. And I'm just so fascinated by humpback and their beauty and their acrobatic abilities and their level of consciousness. They really communicate with you constantly. And it's like you have this relationship with them that you don't even have to use words. It just amazes me how we can have reflections of such beauty and reflections of the world through these animals. So it's reflections of the beauty of the, and the wonder of the natural world, but it's also reflections in the beauty of ourselves and nature and wildlife. And it's like, awakening to your true self. And so many people miss this in life and some people just observe it, but some people really embrace this mystery. And that's what I think is the important thing because when we embrace this mystery, we realize that we have infinite possibilities for the most profound journey that we could ever choose with responsibility. I think it wakes you up and says, this is not just a trip that we're taking to enjoy. This is a trip that we are on to help with the future of the world and of animals. We're inspired by these animals. And that's really important to me. But we have to stick with it. My doctor asked me recently, I think it was just like a routine thing. What makes you happy? And I laughed. And I said, when I walk outside in the morning, and my green beans have grown another foot up into the air. And she kind of laughed. 
that's what we should be happy about. We should be happy about whales, about trees, about gardens, about life, not about social media and how many hits we got. I think people have just totally lost the plot when it comes to what they find makes them feel good. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about the wonders of nature and specifically of whales and the connection between humans and cetaceans and especially your personal experiences with whales. But I'm wondering if you could speak to how whales are important organisms for not only our ocean ecosystems, but also our climate and how they maintain biodiversity and sequester carbon. I don't think a lot of people even realize this, how absolutely important whales are. And not just because they're beautiful and they make people happy, but whales actually carry nutrients from the depths where they feed back to the surface. And there's this incredible liquidy plume of fecal matter, and it's called the whale pump. And they bring all these nutrients upward with their tails by swimming up and down the water column. So it's like an upward biological pump. And there's a good amount of nitrogen that's released in these fecal plumes, which my favorite term for that is punamis, because there's a lot of it. And we get this great soup of nutrients. In fact, we get more nitrogen than all the rivers combined. I mean, this is huge. And so in the past, we've recognized microbes and plankton and fish and uh, that they recycle nutrients in the ocean, yet whales and other marine mammals have largely been overlooked. And that's really too bad because they are bioengineers. They help the climate so much because with all this creates more plankton by circulating the nutrients and fertilizing the phytoplankton with their poo. For instance, just sperm whales alone in the Southern Ocean help sequester over 19 million trees worth of carbon. They, they are bioengineers of their ecosystems and of our ecosystems. They promote the growth of phytoplankton, which absorbs carbon. So if we just had so many whales, that could be an incredible solution for us to really help with the mess we've made. And there's also the whole thing about the whale fall. It's when a whale dies and the crabs and the worms and the clams and everything start to eat it. Well, the the carcass itself of a whale transports about 190,000 tons of carbon. That's what is produced by about 80,000 cars every year. So when you think about saving the whales, you're actually thinking about saving the people whether it's your family or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or whatever. And this is a really big issue for me because I have nine grandchildren and I worry about them and what their responsibility will be and what we are leaving them because we are leaving them a, a big mess. And we need to think beyond immediate results and consider the next steps and the consequences. And I think we tend to forget to do that because otherwise they're going to get stuck with it. Many people view whales as a conservation success story. Their numbers having recovered since whaling was big in the 1900s, but whales are by no means out of the clear. So I was wondering what sorts of hazards whales face nowadays in the Anthropocene and how we need to go about conserving them now. Well, everybody thinks that in the 60s we saved whales, and we didn't at all. I mean, even the population that Callie and I are down here working on in the South Pacific, we're the last of the endangered population of migratory humpback whales in the world. And Oman is the last of the non-migratory population of endangered humpbacks in the world. But there are many, many species endangered of other whales, and they're going to be a lot more because climate change will affect them, their food and their migration, their navigation. So that much hasn't changed because we still have all the nets that are set up. 
we still have anthropogenic noise, which is getting worse with the military testing and with so many ships and whales are getting used to the noise. And so they're getting hit by boats and Iceland's going to start killing fin whales. And that's just sickening to me. And the Japanese are still killing whales and talking about going back down to the Southern Ocean. What's the point? It's just, it's bewildering to me. So besides all that, the invisible threat, of course, is poisons. So the big thing is, for instance, the fat-soluble chemicals, the organohalogens, the PCBs, all that, they're stored in the blubber of animals and especially whales because they're not water-soluble, they're fat-soluble. So the only way they can get rid of them is to nurse their young. And it crosses over the mammary shield. And then the calf gets this download of incredible toxin and has learning disabilities. It sometimes has a deformed spine. It sometimes dies. Mother's milk should be healthy and enriching, and instead it's poison. So we can't exactly see how poisonous we're getting these whales to be. We did do a project. We first started calling it Global Ecotox. And what we did is went around the world and collected samples on the Odyssey when Roger Payne was still alive. And the findings are shocking at how polluted a lot of these animals are. But what we're doing to them, we're doing to us too. And it just seems like all these huge corporations don't care. It's all about money and power. They don't care for poison. Yeah. I was recently reading a book called Fathoms by Rebecca Giggs, and she talks about how whale blubber is now so polluted that some indigenous people who are eating the whale blubber, the mothers, their milk is becoming so polluted that they're advised not to breastfeed their children anymore. So nature's kind of coming back to bite us a little bit. A lot? A lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have had the privilege of working with Nan Hauser for the past three months during her field season in the Cook Island, and I have learned so much from her about whales and their central role in our world and our lives. Firstly, Nan mentions the critical role that whales play in maintaining healthy ecosystems, aptly calling them bioengineers of our planet. One example of this bioengineering is the whale pump. Whales feed at depth and then must surface to breathe. As they rise to do so, they defecate and release vital nutrients that feed phytoplankton. Subsequently, this phytoplankton sequesters around 40% of the carbon from the atmosphere and produces half of our planet's oxygen, the equivalent of four Amazon rainforests. And not only are whales vital for our survival and the survival of our planet, but they should also be appreciated for their beauty, temperament, and intelligence as well. In this interview, Nan speaks of whales' seductive beauty in their wondrous nature. She mentions their altruism, exemplified by a love that extends not only to one another, but to other creatures as well, transcending species bounds. Since beginning work at Cook Islands Whale Research, I have found the privilege of observing humpback whales to be a wondrous experience. But being myself perceived by a non-human animal, seeing a whale, seeing me, now that is a transcendent experience. And there is a feeling when one comes eye to eye with an animal so paradoxical. The whale is known to man in both photo and in song, but is rarely seen by us in daily life. And even when we have the privilege of seeing a whale in person, we are often only offered its body in parts, a dorsal fin here, a fluke there, if we're lucky, a fleeting glimpse of underbelly and whitewater in the chaotic crash of a breach. For us, the whale still encapsulates the exhilarating mystery of the ocean, one of nature's last frontiers. We know the whale in its parts, but not in its whole, and in turn, we focus so hard on seeing them through their shroud of oceanic mystery that we forget that they can see us. And the sudden realization, spurred by watching as a whale spy hops, quietly and vertically rising from the water's still surface, 
and turning its body gracefully until its beady eye lands right on you, that you are struck dumb by your own blind human egocentrism. Whales offer us thrill, love, and security in the forms of mist and breath. Whales offer us scientific and spiritual mystery, and whales reveal to us the good and the bad in our own humanity. And now, back to the interview. Roger Payne helped produce the best-selling nature album in the world, Songs of the Humpback Whale. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little, why do humpbacks sing and which animals sing? This is huge. Only the males sing. Females vocalize, but the males actually sing songs. A song is something that is repeated over and over again. It's made up of phrases. And it's quite fascinating. This all came from Bermuda from Frank Watlington, who gave Roger the songs that were collected by the military. They were all top secret back in the day, and then they were released. And so, yeah, the 1964 Bermuda Whale Song is the most famous in the world. We know that humpback males sing to attract females, and we know that's true. And then the next year, it's a completely different song. And the next year, a different song and a different song. And so it's really exciting to drop the hydrophone and hear what song is being sung this year. And yet what we found by collecting thousands of songs all the way from Western Australia to South America is that these phrases, and each song is made up of four or five phrases, a phrase of the song is being passed across Oceania. It's called horizontal cultural transmission over a huge ocean basin because we can have a phrase in Western Australia and then the next year we'll go, wait, that phrase is in Eastern Australia. And then the next year, it's in New Caledonia, and then Tonga, and Samoa, and the Cook Islands, and French Polynesia. And it took two years, but then it made it all the way to South America. So it's fascinating that the phrases of the songs are being passed like ripples across the Southern Hemisphere. But one of the things I wanted to do is to compare Northern Hemisphere song in Bermuda with the song here, because it's comparing North Atlantic with South Pacific, and it's also comparing Northern Hemisphere with Southern Hemisphere. So I started that a couple of years ago with Cornell and Nonesuch Expeditions, and it's been really, really fascinating. Lots more to follow on that. But you ask, why do they sing the songs? Well, it's probably passing data along. It's probably talking about maybe the feeding grounds or the migration or whatever. And I know that we're all trying very hard and using artificial intelligence and everything right now to try to figure out even more clearly why this song is so important and how it's being passed on. But so two males will come together and they'll compare song and as if to say, my song is more beautiful. I can hold my breath longer. My lungs are bigger. I can sing a more beautiful song. So bugger off and go sing over here, but I'm going to sing here. But it's really funny because you will see these two whales and then they start competing in different ways, not just through song, but breaching and trying to impress the female. And they'll be bashing into each other and trying to get into the right position to impress her. And she'll take the underdog sometimes. I've never like, oh, but that other one's so much bigger his breach was so much higher. On this level of the frequency, it seems like there's a transmission, just like we, we tell stories, we, we pass on folk stories, but it keeps on getting embellished. And it's a way of keeping the, the mind alive instead of repeating the same. It's adding to it. And it's an, a kind of artistry, but not a dead signal. It's a growing or moving and evolving signal. I love that, Mia. I love that. We, we had the fortune to, to interview the filmmakers of the 
loneliest whale and the song frequency you're describing is social. I, I can see a community of whales across the oceans, but the loneliest whale, you know, the story is so sad. I don't know the outcome. Did they ever find a mate for this lonely whale who had a lonely frequency that no one else shared? No. Yeah, that's on us again, as you enumerated the many things that we've done in the oceans, whether it was hunting or polluting or noise pollution. Mm -hmm. But yeah, to go into a little bit about how whales demonstrate love, you've experienced whale love, but among Mm -hmm. their own and maybe among other species. Yeah, boy, the love between whales is unbelievable, especially the mother and calf. It's just fierce love. It's just beautiful. She will protect that animal with every part of her being. And I think one of the projects that I have done in the past is to take ex-whalers out. And when they're with a mother and calf, they cry because, of course, they had been in a position in the past of killing a mother or interfering with mother and calf or even killing a calf. And to see that love between them, oh, I'm not sure there are words that can describe it. This altruistic behavior of humpbacks specifically helping each other, but other species and helping seals and protecting other whales from killer whales. I've even seen them protecting sharks from other whales that want to eat the sharks. It's a deep concern that they have that is beautiful. They're not gaining anything from it. So it really is true unconditional love. And it's mysterious when a a pilot whale strands and then you see the whole pod go in because one is giving a distress call. That's not stupidity. That's love. That's beautiful. You spoke Mm -hmm. a bit about what global warming is doing to the ecosystems and the migratory patterns of whales. So what will happen as we deal with oceans warmer than ever, microplastics snowing down on our oceans? As we get to certain levels, how will that affect whales? And as you say, the the whole ecosystem. So humpback whales feed at the poles, the poles as in the South Pole or the North Pole, but they don't really cross the equator. So we have the Southern Hemisphere humpbacks and we have the northern hemisphere humpbacks the southern hemisphere humpbacks they go down to antarctica and they feed and feed and they're gorged themselves for like four four to six months they'll just eat and then they will fast and they will migrate to the warmer waters of oceania to mate and give birth which is fascinating, but they won't eat. So they're living off their blubber. So for instance, if they're 45,000 pounds, they can lose 15,000 pounds during the migration. And you think about a female, she's swimming pregnant, she's giving birth, she's creating enough milk to feed her young, who's probably gaining about 100 pounds a day, and she's swimming with it all the way back down to Antarctica. So that's why you have reverse dimorphism in humpback whales. The females are a little bit bigger than the males. They have to be. But when these whales go back down to Antarctica, to where they've been feeding for thousands or millions of years, because of climate change, their food has moved. So the krill isn't there anymore, or the krill has moved to another area where there's food for them. So everything's shifting. So how do these whales going to know where to go? And this is really, really interesting. If they're used to going to a certain area, to feed and they've been going there forever, suddenly their food's not there or their food has died off. A lot of species of animals aren't going to make it. They're going to become endangered and they're going to die. And that just kills me. It just absolutely kills me. You know, people think that climate change, oh yeah, right. It'll settle itself. But it's like every aspect of your life you read more and more about how it affects everything. It's going to affect the way we travel in an airplane. 
because of the currents. It's going to affect even our ability to get out there and observe whales and learn more and more about their behavior and their DNA and their acoustics. The climate is changing so much that we're going to lose the ability to go out and really be able to study them. And for instance, we've had babies, newborn calves, wash up over the reef into the lagoon with the mother on the other side because of the higher wave activity, because of rougher storms. And so we're seeing it so much in our own lives. When are people going to start paying attention? That's what scares me. If they're not paying attention now, it's so bewildering to me. We have a voice. We have a mind. Use it. That's definitely where animals and the natural world, which of course we're animals, but you know, non-human animals are better than us because they react quickly. They just think about the dangers and their survival. And we tend to think we can dominate everything and overcome it and make it yield to our will. So on your book that you're working at the moment, I believe it focuses on your reunion with the humpback whale, but also as a way of, through that story, engaging our compassion for the oceans in general. Yes. In fact, I'm writing three books and they're all a little bit different. My favorite one is an autobiography because I've had a crazy life and I just look at it as being an incredible adventure. It starts out with me falling 24 feet headfirst on the pavement when I'm 22 months old and getting knocked out and having to live with epilepsy and trying to hold down relationships with men who are threatened by your job and going away and this and that. I just threw my kids on my back. My kids were my research assistants. And not that I haven't had great relationships. I, ha I have great relationships, but that's my sort of fun book. The first book though, it starts out with the military using mid-frequency sonar at 242 decibels and 53 Charlie and how we dug up whales that they had quickly buried to hide the evidence and pressing charges against the Navy to stop using sonar. What it really entails being a whale biologist. And it's a lot more than getting in a boat and going out there and doing your research. You want to talk about it a little bit, Kelly? Being a whale biologist <laughs> is a lot more than just going out in the boat. We spend maybe just as many days on land fixing cars and fixing the boat and fixing tires and dealing with equipment that's out of whack so we spend just as much time doing things that seem maybe only tangentially related to whales for that one moment to spend with the whales. And Roger Payne also starts his book by writing that being a whale biologist requires so many more skills than just being able to understand whales. It requires being a jack of all trades. It requires being able to do everything. I've known Roger forever and, and worked with him pretty much steadily from 90 up until he died. So just recently. So he's always been a great friend. And so being an activist conservationist, you also, I understand, believe in the power of story. So what for you is the importance of the environmental humanities? Well, storytelling has always been very important to me. I grew up on a Quaker wildlife preserve where we would tell stories every night around the fire before we went to bed. And I come here, I've been here in the South Pacific for 27 years where there was no written language. It was all about storytelling. And yes, I know that some stories certainly do get embellished, but 
these stories that are happening now that we need to spread to the world are not being embellished. They are true stories that people need to take to heart and realize. And everybody has to play a part. Everybody. It's not a national problem. It's not an, an, an international problem. It is a global problem. And every single person has to play a part. So I don't care what language these stories are told in. They all need to be told in every possible way of communication, whether it's verbal or nonverbal or whatever languages, whether it's the language of the whales or the humans or the fruit bats up in the trees. This is everybody. And it's so sad, really, to think about how lazy humans have gotten, how spoiled they've gotten, especially in the Western world. And it's not that hard to make changes. If you don't want to make them make for yourself, make them for your grandchildren, make them for your great-grandchildren. Make them for the birds at the bird feeder. Make them for something that you can relate to, that you can love, that you can feel love for. But just make the changes. I think there's definitely that vibrational healing that you get from nature. And as wonderful as the new technologies are, I'm sure you rely on them for charting or even your underwater breathing. I mean, these are things you couldn't do your job without. But AI and the new technologies or ChatGPT, in a sense, we're damaging our own frequencies. And we don't know down the line how that will change us. So what are your reflection on AI and the new technologies? I wrote a little bit about it last night because I'm pretty amazed by AI and I really don't know a whole lot about it. But I think there are challenges and there are opportunities with AI. And it's truly a revolutionary feat of computer technology. If it's used positively, is it used positively? Is it going to be a threat for us right now? We use something called Happy Whale, which is an AI program where we can take our tails of humpbacks or we're starting to use dorsal fins now, and even the crenulations at the end of the, the tail fluke or a flipper, and AI will match that whale no matter where it is in the world. And that's phenomenal because we used to sit there passing pieces of paper around in the old days before digital and pictures, and that's fabulous. And now we're even starting to use AI with song, which is great. We're taking 30-second intervals of song and comparing it with different parts of the world. So I think AI can be fabulous in this research, and yet I, I'm very naive about it. And when people start talking about how it could cause the extinction of humans, I don't know what to think. I try to keep a very happy, positive attitude. My mother and my grandmother always taught me that. So that's where I will stand. You're a very positive person. And I've asked more compassionate scientists who have an equal respect for research and the future, as well as conserving the past and conserving nature, were involved in the governance of AI and the new technologies, then we'll be all right. We just need more of you involved behind the scenes. AI, it's all really mysterious. How about you, Kathy? As long as we view AI as a tool and not start viewing it as a peer, I think that hmm. we can use it positively. So Nan, as you think about the future and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Oh, I've thought about this so much with having nine grandchildren. Well, I'd like to feel like we did the best we could, but I feel like we've put everything out of kilter. And we have to work really hard to find a balance. And that's in nature, that's within ourselves, that's within the knowledge that we have, finding that balance. And as I mentioned before, we need to think positively. We need to stay with it. We need to have that faith that we're going to do it. 
And personally, I'm adamantly opposed to war. I grew up a Quaker, and I find that the greed that corporations have, we need to change that. We can't let the world be run by money and greed. We cannot be a lazy society. And I, I can only think positively. I was asked this question at the end of a documentary that we made, and I start to cry. And I start to cry, and I go, I don't know what's going to happen. And I think that we have to stand strong and not fall apart and do the very best we can together, all of us, not just some of us, all of us. Indeed, together. Well, thank you, Nan Hauser, for awakening us to the infinite possibilities and our profound responsibilities for your important contributions to whale research and helping us understand their kinship, navigation, how they communicate, love, and contribute to a complex ecosystem. Your work is impactful and expresses the wonders of the ocean. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Mia, it is such a privilege to be on your show and to meet you. Thank you so much. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Callie Cho with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were David Phillips and Callie Cho, as well as Sophie Garnier. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.